Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's going on, fam? Episode 102, and I have something a bit different for you this week. Here's the rundown. My guest is Eugene Soltis. Eugene is a finance professor at Harvard Business School, and over the past eight years, give or take, He's gotten to know and spent a lot of time with many big-time executives and professionals who have been convicted of major financial crimes, such as cooking the books, fraud, Ponzi schemes, and even insider trading. What began as nothing other than self-interest has escalated into a 464-page book, which was released in October this year, 2016. The book is titled, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of the White Collar Criminal. Intrigued by the subject matter, I invited Eugene onto the podcast and we got talking about how Bernie Madoff became the mastermind behind the biggest fraudulent scheme in US history, sucking billions upon billions of dollars from unsuspecting investors, some of the notorious insider trading cases, and ultimately why they do it. As I mentioned, Eugene's book is available now, so if you'd like to take a closer look or even grab a hardcover copy, just go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash why they do it, and that'll take you directly to why they do it on Amazon. But also worth mentioning, you can get this as a free audiobook too when you sign up for a free Audible trial, all at the same link, chatwithtraders.com forward slash why they do it. Okay, folks, here it is, my interview with Eugene Soltis from Harvard Business School in Boston. How's things? What's been going on? Uh, things have been well. I actually just uh, just been doing a pile of presentations on the book. So uh, I actually just arrived back. Uh, I was doing one at another university. Uh, a couple of schools are actually giving it as, as I guess, reading in some of the finance classes. And uh, I guess... Uh, it's both easier and I think probably a little bit more lively if I give a presentation than, than, the, than the professor. But given how many schools there are in Boston, I've now done this five times. So, <laughs> so you're getting to know it pretty well. <laughs> yeah, at this, at this point, I, I, uh, 
I don't know backwards and forwards quite yet, but I, I think probably a couple more iterations I'll get there. You're getting there. Nice, nice. Oh, that's cool, man. It's good that there's a lot of interest around it. Very cool. My copy arrived in the mail uh, just the other day. Obviously, I haven't really had a chance to read too much of it, but it's definitely something I will be reading for sure. Oh, good. Um, well, there seems to be a it, – it's certainly a different take on some of the, uh, I guess, white-collar crime compared to some other books written on the topic. So at least it spurred some different conversation, which seems to be uh, – well received so far. So I wanted to bring you onto the podcast because I'm really intrigued by this book you've written, uh, which is titled Why They Do It. Uh, But before we talk about that, let's hear a little bit about yourself. So, you know, besides now wearing the badge as an author, what else do you do? Well, my my main job is uh, I'm a professor at Harvard Business School. And in this role, I teach a, a number of our executive education programs, primarily in finance, accounting, and some of these, uh, say, gray, gray area decisions like those described in the book. And most of my empirical work, uh, this is a qualitative work we're talking about the book, but most of my empirical work w- looks at uh, issues around financial economics and corporate disclosure. Okay. And is it true that you had aspirations of becoming a trader yourself before you went down this path? I, di- I did. Actually, in many ways, this is what I, I expected to maybe hopefully do an interview with you but in a different context, uh, <laughs> a different different path. So I actually spent uh, my background in college. Uh, I was uh, in economics, and I did a master's in statistics. So very much thought I was going to be a kind of a quantitative finance uh, finance guy. Spent spent uh, some time at UBS uh, trading uh, trading uh, options, exotic options, and uh, but then they I, I ended up going to get a PhD, and then the financial crisis hit. And I found myself uh, look, looking at a different prospects uh, and uh, was offered a position at Harvard Business School and a, had a couple other offers and, and thought that would be something interesting to try very much. I didn't know if I, I, uh, I would ever be, be truly meant to be an academic, but it turned out it, it suits me very well because ultimately I get to explore the same kinds of questions that I'm interested in in the financial world, but I get a, a lot more time to delve into them much more deeply. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. Right, right. Okay. And how long have you been doing this for now? Uh, so th- this is my, I've been on the faculty of uh, Harvard Business School for eight, eight years. Uh, and this bo- book, uh, kind of uh, strangely enough, actually has been continuing that in- entire time. It actually originally even began as I was a graduate student. So th- this project is very much one that's uh, <laughs> my, my entire life as, as a scholar. Let's talk about the book. Like, what motivated you to write this book? What sparked the idea for it? Well, it started out not not as a, a scholarly project or, or intellectual endeavor. It started out very much as, I'll say, a, a question of a personal interest, uh, the same that I think many, many people have. So actually, as a graduate student, when I was actually finishing up my dissertation, a big empirical data set looking at the, how uh, dissemination by the media affects the volatility and cost of capital for firm shares. So a very kind of traditional asset pricing type project. I'm up at three in the morning watching TV, desperately trying to stay awake while I wait for some regressions to come out. And I came across a show on MSNBC called Lockup. And it's a, it's a great kind of show to watch at three in the morning that's a cross between a reality TV show and a documentary. And they go into prisons and basically interview people to understand what what happened. And most of the people on the show are, are violent offenders, uh, murder, assault, rape, uh, things of that nature. And I'm watching the show and thinking about the people 
that are kind of closer to my heart, which is as a financial economist, I'm thinking about all these business leaders, people that I, like others, looked up to, people that were on the cover of Fortune, you know, or on CNBC talking, and, you know, the titans of industry. And I was watching the show and just wondering if they were in this position, what what would they say to some of these, these questions? Uh, these are the people that we hear so much about, we read, we hear from them when they're successful, but all of a sudden when when they've made some errors and, and you know are sent away to prison, they, they disappear and we never hear from them again. And so that evening, uh, out of just personal interest, I, I sent some letters to a couple of the people, people from Enron and, and Tyco, that came to, came to my mind that were very much still in the news at the time, eight, eight years ago, and uh, went, then went back to my dissertation work. And then uh, a couple months later, I uh, start getting letters uh, back from people. Some started responding to my questions. Others, like the CEO of uh, Tyco, Des Kozłowski, said, uh, sure, I have, I have time now. Come visit me and we can chat. And it's, it's actually just from that, that really just personal curiosity of trying to understand what's happening here that this project uh, was created. So what sort of things were you saying to them in the letters? Really, I think open-minded and curiosity. So I, I would start start saying, you know, I'm as I joined the faculty and I was writing uh, writing people, you know, I, I'm a I'm a faculty member at HBS. You know, I, I I'm a financial economist at heart. You know, I've looked at your career and you know you did a lot of amazing things, uh, impressive things. But simultaneously, I'm also trying to understand what happened. How did you end up in the position you're currently in? And could you spend some time and could we kind of just walk through things? And I'd like to better understand your perspective. I think one of the things that probably made that that helped me uh, create these conversations and kind of spurred interest on the part of people I was writing, people who were in some cases uncomfortable talking originally or, or haven't you know spoke, spoken to people in the media, is that I did commit, and the nice part being an academic, I didn't need to just have one conversation like a journalist and then have to write an article at the end of the week. I could commit that I would spend as much time as, as I needed to really try to understand their perspective, whether that was days, weeks, months, in some cases a couple years with some people before I really felt I was understanding their 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 perspective because that's ultimately what the goal of this project was, is to put myself in their shoes and try to see the world as they saw it and and convey that convey that to you know my students and, and ultimately people that read the book. So when you initially sent letters to these people who you've documented in your book now, did you actually have intentions of writing a book at that time or was it still just general curiosity? No, yeah, no, this, de- this definitely didn't start, start as a book. If anything, quite, quite I think had I realized how much time and, and effort that I would ultimately spend this project, I, I might have run the other direction. Um, this started, it started as, I mean, genuinely just as curiosity. I thought I was just going to have some conversations because it would just make me a more informed person. Uh, frankly, I, I still do this now in a variety of other contexts. When I'm trying to learn about a new industry, I write leading people in industry and, and want to sit down and, and learn from them. And the same thing, if we want to understand successful people that, that have ended up making some mistakes, oftentimes quite significant mistakes, I think we need to spend time and, and spe- speak to those individuals in the same manner. Um, and then what kind of got the ball rolling is that one of the initial letters I received back was uh, from Stephen Richards, who is the global head of sales of Computer Associates, um, an, an Australian, uh, actually, originally before he moved to the United States. And in this really articulate and I think thoughtful and reflective letter, he describes some of the pressures and challenges that, that he faced. And 
I took this this letter uh, with with, uh, with Stephen's permission and actually wrote a Harvard Business School case around it. Basically, just literally reprinted his letter and then wrote the context behind what was going on at Computer Associates. A really kind of um, I could say subtle fraud in that they didn't make up anything, but rather they had contracts that came in on Monday and Tuesday, and they backdated them to the following Friday to make them go in the prior quarter. So a a pretty uh, you could say different from some of the more you know larger and egregious frauds, but ultimately because of this backdating for a few days, eight senior executives went to prison uh, for quite lengthy sentences. And so I took this letter that Stephen wrote. I, I wrote this case, and we we taught it as the last class in the the MBA curriculum at, at HBS. And uh, students and my colleagues had a lot of interesting things to say after after the hour and a half discussion with ultimately nine hundred students. Were read this uh, read this case on the first pass through, and uh, it's still today. I mean, what's interesting from this one case, this is now still taught to everyone that comes through HBS. It's taught at the end of the first semester uh, it, for all the MBA students, and then it's taught in many of our executive programs, and it's taught it now around sixty other business schools uh, around the world. Um, so this really thoughtful letter is kind of it after actually hearing the discussion. And questions that students and, and colleagues would ask me after doing this case discussion, that I realized there might be something really here more substantive than just a kind of personal curiosity, that learning from these executives' perspective, we might gain a deeper appreciation for some of the challenges and in, in mistakes that, that they, they faced and made. Um, so this is where I started delving more deeply into both the background about what might be going on, the psychology, the sociology, the different you know, literatures that could explain this. And then simultaneously, I really started speaking to many more people to get their perspective. Right. So it's evident that some people were responding to your letters, but, you know, generally speaking, how willing were they to speak with you? Or was there some hesitation? Because I imagine that most of them probably weren't overly proud of where they've ended up. Yeah, I think I think this is one of the, I'd say, uh, 90, 90, Plus percent of the individuals I wrote ultimately ended up uh, speaking speaking to me. Um, uh, there was uh, two or three cases where people still had ongoing litigation, uh, and for that reason, they didn't feel comfortable talking. Uh, say in some cases, even people with ongoing litigation were still willing to chat. Um, and there were two or three other people that were were just simply. Uh, I think this was just such an overwhelming experience for them that they just literally couldn't bring themselves to speak about it. But by and large. People were willing. What what I learned is that no one write, no one was, except for a couple unusual exceptions, no one wrote back that they were excited to talk about this. What they what they write back is saying, you know what, this was challenging, but you know what, I, I think I I see that there's an educational benefit for helping you know students. Uh, some of these people are graduates of Harvard Business School and Wharton and some of the top business schools, and so they they do feel that there's things that they can share both with the mistakes they made, but they also think, and, and I agree with them, that there are things that they could share about some of the better things they did in their career. So in most cases, when I would start talking with people, we wouldn't jump in and talk about the challenging parts in their in their life. What we do is spend many conversations, oftentimes, talking about how they got from, you know, college or, or even, you know, out of high school. How did they go from those those modest beginnings to becoming a, a you know, a, a corporate superstar? Um, so talk about the things in life that were actually really successful, that that not only served to help me understand their background, where they came from, and some of their actually quite innovative things they may have done that were entirely appropriate, but it also helped build a relationship that we were able to then 
understand one another and actually kind of delve more deeply in, into into various things. And one of the people who I believe you spent the most time with um, in creating this book was Bernie Madoff, probably also the most publicized character. For those who may be unfamiliar, bring us up to speed with who is Bernie Madoff and what is he infamous for? Yeah, so Bernie Madoff is is uh, will will go down at least I think in the history and and certainly for quite a bit is, is the the you know the mastermind of of the largest Ponzi scheme in history uh, in in on the order of twenty twenty billion dollars uh, in terms of you know you could say misappropriated uh, assets. Now, what's fascinating about Madoff Madoff's career though is that he actually began in in the nineteen nineteen sixties is is kind of a coming from a fairly uh, you know, middle class, nothing, nothing from an extraordinary background, but kind of started with these off, off exchange, over the counter securities. He came up kind of from from nothing, so to speak, and from this built a, a brokerage firm that that actually was extraordinarily innovative um, in bringing in electro, uh, electronic uh, trading, things that we we take for granted today. Many of those innovations were led by his firm, and and then later the Nasdaq, which he became chairman of. He, he also uh, was one of the pioneers of paying for order flow to help divert order flow from the main exchanges to other exchanges, something that we also now take for granted that there's a lot of different exchanges where people can competitively trade securities. Um, he also helped – his firm also helped lead the practice of uh, decimalization, of actually bringing down spread, something that every trader can appreciate, um, of, of not, not, uh, not having these extraordinarily wide spreads just by definition in every security. So his firm paved the way in, in a number of these regards. At one point, I believe in, it was in the 1980s, his firm traded actually 10% of all NICE listed st- stocks off the exchange. Just an extraordinary volume. And so uh, against this background of building a ex- really quite remarkable brokerage firm, Madoff also created a investment management business and a, a Kind of, you could say it started uh, as a as a side venture uh, alongside this brokerage business, but but ultimately grew to become this rather extraordinarily large uh, fund in the tens and tens of billions of dollars that would ultimately become the heart of the Ponzi the Ponzi scheme, um, and and it's for that that we now uh, I think remember and think about uh, Madoff and you know one of the things that made him it makes him different from. Uh, any of the executives I spoke with, but then you could say executives, any executives that have been convicted, is is not only the size uh, of his fraud. Uh, we're we're talking, you know, if we go to the second and third largest, looking at like Alan Stanford, uh, we're we're talking there five billion, you know, five billion type dollars. Uh, Madoff's is quadruple that. Uh, so we're talking a huge magnitude, but simultaneously, Madoff's victims were also people that, in many cases, he knew. These were family. These were friends. These were individuals that were close within the Jewish community. And that's what makes his fraud pretty exceptional is that these these are not distant, abstract victims. Like when we think of insider trading, people that you can't even really identify. These were these were close, intimate contacts. And I think it's it's unraveling how he could do that to, to people that were trusted him, that were so close to him. That that really has has created so much, uh, I think, fascination and, and just kind of horror about what what he did. So, what exactly did he do wrong? Like, how does a Ponzi scheme work? 
Yeah. So the the basis of a Ponzi scheme is 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 it's mis- misappropri- misappropriating assets. So I mean, in his case, how how it would be billed and how he described it is uh, would be quite uh, m- m- kind of this mundane description at first is a quote books and records violation. But essentially, it starts with the fact that he was trading trading for securities. Specifically, you could say he he likes to think of it as he was naked shorting a strategy to clients. But ultimately, not repurchasing those shares, and ultimately had a capital violation. In that regard, it's not something you could say that exceptional. That's 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 uh, a regulatory violation to the extent that you you have more securities. Basically, you're over levered, but you don't have a sufficient number amount of capital. That's a violation, but that's something that many institutions run into. Now, what firms normally do in that case is you you then get your capital under control. You 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 do something to to fix that problem. Um, you raise more capital. You, you, let's say you, you get out of that. Now, in Bernie Madoff's case, what he did is in some sense, he, he continued, continued kind of doubling down. And the problem is, is you do that and you, you keep having more, more losses. He, he basically was trying to tout and, and sell a strategy to people that ultimately w- wasn't successful. This notion of a, it's a strict, a, something he called the split strike conversion. Uh, it's kind of an option, kind of an option arbitrage based strategy. And it, he ultimately wasn't able to trade that profitably. Now, ultimately, it seems like he was doing some trading for clients throughout the 80s and in even the early 90s. Not completely, but doing some. But ultimately, by the late 1990s, he wasn't trading at all. And this is when it became a true Ponzi scheme, is that ultimately money was coming in the door. So $100 would come in the door. And then ultimately, he was paying out 50 of that to, to investors the following day. To, to, uh, to satisfy redemptions or, or other, other money going out the door. Where it's literally, you're, you're taking in money and immediately paying it out to someone else. There's actually no underlying business, uh, go- going on. And that's ultimately by the nineties what his business became, which is rather remarkable in that for all, for at least a decade, uh, and potentially quite a bit longer, there was no actually substantive, uh, actual business at this investment management firm he was running, despite the fact that it was probably one of the largest. We're talking, you know, there's been various estimates. We're talking fifty billion dollars plus uh, in terms of of, of money uh, um, um, money under management, which would place it in the leagues of, of even some of the largest hedge funds today. Uh, but ultimately, he wasn't doing anything with it. So that last part, we said he'd taken a hundred dollars and then pay out fifty dollars to investors. Are those investors who are invested with him, or are they? Is that someone else? Like, how does that part work? I'm not, I don't quite understand that bit. Oh yeah. So, so this is actually investing for him. So he has he has this group group of investors uh, that you know he had you know hundreds of people directly directly through him. Far more even through some of the feeder funds that were were giving him money. And they were they were they were every um as additional investors were were paying money into his funds. And you know one of the things about about Madoff is people were kind of. Jumping kind of head over heels again over one another to try to give him more money. So, and, and he would always be saying, "Actually, I, I'm not going to take more now. I can't take more money, money now." But then ultimately, some people he did let invest, and so ultimately, this money that came into this this fund would be sitting in this pot, so to speak. And then there would be redemptions. He was creating statements that were going out to people on a monthly and quarterly basis, describing uh, rates of return. We're talking, you know, eight to twelve percent in a lot of instances. And then there would be redemptions. And the question is, well, where did the money from redemptions come? Well, the money sh- ought to have come 
that if you were invested in this fund, it should have been kind of that, that pot that was designated in some sense to you that was actually being invested in the securities that were described on the statement that you were receiving. Turns out in his case, actually, that that pot, so to speak, wasn't not really a pot. It literally, when someone wanted a redemption of, of $15 million, he was looking around for $15 million of proceeds that were coming in to, to pay that money, to pay that money off that was coming in redemptions. You know, ultimately, what ends a Ponzi scheme is the fact that when the amount of redemptions ex- exceeds the amount of, of money flowing into the fund. And that and that's what he ran into, you know, by, by you know, to, when we talked to 2008, uh, he, he starts confronting. So when you say redemptions, you're talking about when uh, investors want to take their money out of his fund. It, exa- exactly. Uh, and this could be for their own liquidity reasons, um, you know, to the extent that very few people were removing money because the returns were not uh, adequate because they were fantastic. If you actually look at a graph, uh, any of us would, would jump in, would jump into that. It's kind of like it would be like the equivalent today if we can invest in, in treasury bills at, 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 at 9 percent. Uh, that would be fantastic. Um, but in some sense, also, you could say too good to be true. And one of the major uh, accusations and, and also a, a delicate area, which there's been much discussion about whether some of the more sophisticated investors in some sense look the other way or were even reckless and not and not uh, recognizing that you know they were getting for for decades these these kind of consistent you know eight to ten percent returns which as has been shown was totally infeasible with the strategy that he was uh, touting that he was actually trading in and selling to people right okay so the returns looked really good on paper but in reality those the money actually wasn't even there. Is that correct? Yeah, the money money wasn't there. the money wasn't there. I mean, he would actually produce a statement, uh, and I actually got one of these statements from from eBay recently. But the statement would would show a list of the various uh, essentially calls and put uh, put options that that he purchased, and then this underlying basket of, of uh, you know S and P shares. But what if you actually look at look at so it, on the statement it describes exactly the, the the you know the calls and puts that lead to a you know, the particular rate of return that, that, you know, investors expected to receive the 8.6% they thought that they received that month. Turns out, though, this, this statement simply reflected a after the fact creation of, of uh, some securities that led to that output. He actually never invested in any of those call options, any of those put options. In fact, if you actually look at the amount of money, the tens of billions of dollars he had invested, it was not actually even feasible for him to be running the strategy because he simply had too much money to actually, he would have overwhelmed those those various markets. So how did he benefit from running this Ponzi scheme? Well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question to ask now, given he's, he's serving a 110-year pres, uh, prison sentence for it. But, but I'll say, you could say at the time, he was one of the most respected individuals in the securities markets. This was a guy that had a kind of the creme de la creme of investors wanting to give him more money. He was the leader. Uh, he had leadership positions in many of the most prestigious organizations, for example, the chairman of the NASDAQ. He was someone that regulators called. When the SEC wanted to talk about the changes that they were going to be making to the securities market, you would pick up the phone. You'd call the major uh, banks. You'd call, be calling Goldman Sachs. You'd call Merrill. You'd also call Bernie Madoff. So he was a well, well-respected admired leader in the securities industry. 
So that's one. Two, he, he also was was very, very well paid. Even by the, the 80s, he was acknowledged as one of the, the higher paid people on, on Wall Street. Um, in large part, it seems like at that point, actually, from his brokerage business. But obviously, to the extent that he was taking in, you know, billions of dollars to his investment management business, uh, you know, even taking a, a small spread, which is a question that people often ask is hedge funds today charge, you know, the common is still, you know, two and 20 percent. So two percent fees off of assets under management and then 20 percent of profits. Bernie Madoff didn't do that. He basically was kind of like running a hedge fund. But in some sense of charging two and 20, he said, all I want to be paid for is for the trades that I do. In some sense, he trading commissions. And that always struck people is on one hand, people thought that he's just this generous guy that he was doing so well that he didn't need to make more. He didn't need to take two and 20 and make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. He'd be happy with, you know, the modest quote millions of dollars a year that he would make from the trading commissions. I think we now look in hindsight and the reason why he was taking, you quote, such a modest amount is simply because he wasn't actually doing anything. If he would have taken two and 20 percent, this would have um, capsized much, much earlier. Uh, because he would have been just taking so much out of the fund. But ultimately, he became wealthy because of this. Um, so prestige and wealth are the things that you could say they benefits while this was actually ongoing. But I don't think that actually is what, uh, you know, you could say motivated him to start a Ponzi scheme. Uh, I don't think, to, even though he, I think, is generally regarded as, as kind of the number one villain when it comes to harm done in financial markets uh, as a white collar offender. I think giving saying Bernie Madoff designed a Ponzi scheme and tried to create this is giving him, frankly, just far too much credit. There's no one that could have actually designed a Ponzi scheme that would that you could knowingly say would last decades and taken tens of billions of dollars. Um, that that's that's almost too brilliant of a thing to do uh, in a sinister way. Um, what what happened here is a series of of mistakes, one leading to another, that got larger and larger, and because of a combination of his unique personality, which actually allowed him to, I think, allow allowed people to trust him very easily. I mean, he's a cordial, friendly, very, very smart individual, which allowed people to trust him. And then uh, a, a series of, in some sense, luck. When regulators looked at his business a number of times, uh, they, they overlooked uh, a number of things that could have been red flags. Um, and then ultimately, he he just was able, as he describes it, it's a comedy of errors. Uh, but what really is, is it's a kind of just really tragic way of seeing a, a person who's incredibly smart and clever uh, ultimately use that information and knowledge to, to perpetrate a, a just a really damaging Ponzi scheme that, you know, ultimately for both friends, family and, and the larger investor community has had so much harm. Okay. So at the end of the day, how were his investors uh, hurt or damaged by this? Yeah. So the investors that were directly through, uh, invested directly uh, through him, and then there was another group that was invested uh, through feeder funds, uh, basically small, smaller investors that were being aggregated together through these feeder funds and then investing in him. Ultimately, when his, his uh, Ponzi scheme unraveled, the question is, well, what was left? Uh, there actually wasn't that much left. There was actually, you know, there was, I believe, a couple billion dollars, which, yes, that's a lot of money, but that's not a lot of money considering the tens of billions of dollars that ought to have been sitting there. Uh, the, ultimately, his, his fund was basically put in a, you could say, almost like a receivership 
and a, a lawyer has basically been going after people that profited uh, from from, from uh, that basically took out proceeds over time, profited from the fraud, and has been suing them to get their money back in some sense, re-put in the hole, and to help repay investors that, in some sense, you could say lost everything. Um, because immediately after the fraud was revealed, the question is, was there literally anything left? People that had their life savings in some instances, uh, some of the smaller investors, to even some of the wealthier investors that that lost, you know, we're talking millions and millions of dollars uh, in, in individual accounts. Uh, so in that regard, it, it was it was pretty devastating uh, to individuals um, that, that really trusted him as a, a leader in the financial markets. So how did things come unstuck? Like how did Bernie Madoff get caught out on all of this? Like you said, he was able to pull this off for over a decade or something like that. How was he able to do that for so long and how did he come unstuck? I think uh, a, a series of of a, a, a there was a, t- a number of times in which he nearly got caught. So in 2006, actually, the Securities and Exchange Commission actually brought him in and, and, and for a deposition because there was actually some uh, accusations that he actually might be uh, tra- trading in front of some of his brokerage clients. Some people thought that one way to explain the fantastic returns of his investment management clients is that. He was essentially using the data and orders from his brokerage business to allow people to front run. And that's what was producing it. So the SEC went in and basically brought him in and questioned him and, and looked into whether it was front running. Um, at the end of that, he they actually asked him where, where all the assets were being kept at this depository bank. And he actually gave them their account number. And he, he described how when he was coming home and, and he was thinking about it, he actually thought the, kind of the game was up at that point in time because he gave them the depository number, which had the regulators actually called and actually tried to verify that information. It would have been a, a – a, there was a problem of missing zeros. Uh, he had in the order of you know a couple million dollars of securities there where one hedge fund that was invested in him should have had several billion dollars in that account. It was so wildly off. But ultimately, in that case, and, and regulators didn't look into that. And the interesting part is, well, the question is why. And there's been a lot of questions. I, I don't. A lot of people have been very, very critical that the the SEC and others may have uh, for overlooking this. At the same time, Bernie Madoff was such a well-respected individual in the financial industry that to to think that this guy could have been doing a Ponzi scheme at the time, that the guy that's the chairman of one of the largest exchanges in the world was was basically nothing more than a fraud. It's almost so uh, inconceivable, so unbelievable that it's not really a plausible hypothesis. And so they were looking to front running something that would be, you could say, uh, he might have been doing sometimes. It could have been plausible. So they looked into a much more plausible charge. But ultimately, they didn't find any evidence of that. And as, as Madoff reflects, the reason they didn't find any evidence of front running is because he wasn't doing any trading at all, ironically. And, uh, but ultimately, so this is 2006. Ultimately, a couple of years goes by, and frankly, the scheme could have gone on uh, potentially longer had it not been for the fact that as the financial crisis emerged, what, what happened? A lot of institutional investors, a lot, a lot of individual clients started to need to withdraw money. And so he ran into the problem of uh, basically a cash flow issue is that he needed additional inflows, significant inflows to maintain the amount of outflows and, and reached a point where the redemptions were going to uh, – get to the level where it was just unsustainable to continue to run the Ponzi scheme. So it's that point in which he, you know, 
as it's described, told his sons and ultimately called regulators and, and, and quote, turned himself in for, for running this. Is that really what happened? He actually turned himself in, did he? Well, it's, it's along with, I could say, technically, I believe his sons are the ones that, that turn, turned, technically turned him in. Um, but, but ultimately, it was a family matter in that it's, he wasn't caught, he wasn't caught red-handed by an auditor or a regulator. The reason why that, that week or that day in particular, uh, it, everything unwound is because he, along with his sons, uh, alerted regulators to what was going on. Right, right. Okay. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You've spent a lot of time with Bernie Madoff in coming up with content for this book. What was he like as a person? Like, Was there anything off about his personality? I mean, most of us couldn't fathom blatantly ripping off our family members and close friends and that sort of thing for him it seems like it wasn't really an issue yeah that's i mean the first time i remember you know my first conversation you've read so much about someone like bernie madoff i mean you know it couldn't you know international news you know for for my first conversation i mean it was it was a couple years uh after he was convicted that i first spoke with him on, on the phone this is someone that you, you you've just read so much about that you wonder what the what is this guy going to be like? Is he going to be you know uh, you know angry? Is he going to be you know reflective? Uh, you know what's his personality? What's what's kind of fascinating about Madoff is you know I would say my interactions with him have been uh, you know he he's cordial, he's he's smart as a whip. I mean his memory, his ability to to talk about detail. Uh, to go into uh, the understanding of nuances in the financial markets, to really delve down. I mean, many ways I can say I, I think we've come to relate to each other in some ways in this academic sense that we can talk about really detailed things in the securities market. I mean, he's he's read it, papers and books that I assign to my students in class uh, are things that we, we've spent time talking about, in part because I want to see how he thinks about uh, matters that are not around his case, but the security market more broadly. He's a smart, smart guy um, and cordial. But that's simultaneously, I know in the back of my mind, I, I'm entirely aware of, of what, what he's done. And frankly, he he has an awareness of it, but it's in a, a very kind of distant sense. Um, I mean, once he reflected that 
in a quite genuine way, he said, you know, I've often wondered, I can't believe how large these losses became. Like, it's just so unbelievable. I don't know how to explain how, how I did this. And, you know, is there, is there a flaw in me? How could I have done this? And I think my time with him is in some sense been that self-questioning uh, of trying to understand why a career which could have in many ways led to a, you know, a prosperous and, you know, career of where he would have retired as a, you know, successful, well, well-respected executive uh, ended up now he's known as the, you know, greatest corporate villain and, and he's going to die in prison. Uh, which is something which, you know, he doesn't express anger. Uh, I think, you know, I, I, I think he'd be the first to say that, you know, he deceived people. And so in some sense, the fact that he broke the law, his his punishment is is justified for that reason. And he doesn't hold, in some sense, a grunge, which is what also distinguishes him, that someone that's about to, you know, be imprisoned for life and never have any of those comforts that, that he spent his entire life around, he he's able to take that, uh, in a way that um, kind of take take those punches in, in a way that is, I think, different than how most people would would be doing it, which would be a, a form of a crisis, uh, which is actually, I think, deeply revealing about his personality is how he's able to kind of confront these just radical situations with with a degree of almost uh, unusual calmness. Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting tale. Um, another character who's profiled in your book is Michael Rand. Um, I'm keen to hear a little bit about his story. Um, I think what's interesting about him is he was someone uh, who you got to know, and he was one of the few executives uh, persecuted from the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. What was his story? Yeah, Michael Rand's case is is is, is fascinating, and it's not one that that made made the news as much. In particular, because it was a uh, post-financial crisis, and there was already so much news of trying to understand what was going on. But so Michael, Michael was a the chief accounting officer at Beezer Homes, a a, uh, a fantastic home builder that was doing spectacularly well uh, in a you know post two thousand period as as there was the mortgage boom. And what Beezer did was actually build uh, homes and and housing districts. They were the type that would build, you know, the ni- nice homes and then build the roads in the community around around these homes. Business was doing fa- fantastically well. Actually, the problem, if, if anything, you could say was they were doing so well that every single quarter they were just blasting past estimates of both analysts and their own internal estimates of how well they were doing. And that actually became a source of, of challenge, uh, which is ultimately uh, where, where kind of Rand's case uh becomes both interesting and, and a turn for the worse. And so in, in his case, when the the uh, firm was doing very, very well, one of the things they had to do was, was take reserves for the amount of expected expenditures to complete houses. So Beezer finishes a home, and after they sell it to the customer, there might be some additional paint work that has to be done. There might be uh, some pipes that are leaky that need to be replaced. And so like most firms, they would actually put a reserve associated with this additional work. And ultimately, Michael uh, was brought uh, brought in front of a, a judge. So, you know, ultimately, mortgage crisis happens. Uh, Beezer, Beezer, you know, struggling like most other home builders. And ultimately, he's indicted uh, for, for what would be called cookie jar accounting. 
and he was being held responsible for not over-reporting earnings as almost his invariable case, but actually under-reporting earnings. And the charge against him is saying that when Beezer was actually doing so well that he basically instructed his executives, his subordinates, to basically over-reserve. And in, in over-reserving, try to actually lower earnings for the firm so they wouldn't blast past uh, estimates uh, as, as, as significantly as they were. And, and it's, a, it's a pretty interesting case because I can't think of very many instances in which an executive is actually be held, is ultimately you know, being in part criminally held responsible for, for under-reporting earnings. But what makes this case even, I think, more interesting is if you actually look at how he was prosecuted – the, the attorney starts out the case against him saying that a accounting officer is like an umpire in a baseball game. And the umpire is supposed to call the balls and the strikes as, as he sees them. He's not supposed to look at the scoreboard and then decide whether it's a ball or a strike. And what the prosecutor said is that what I'm going to show you in this case is that Michael Rand was like an umpire who looked at the scoreboard and then decide whether something was a ball or strike. Now, what's interesting is to the extent people you know, know a little bit about how accounting works, managers actually have discretion and actually have a fair amount of discretion, both under U.S. GAAP and under IFRS. And so the case really hinged around whether he actually used discretion uh, with, within uh, a, a kind of appropriate guidance or, with not, uh, or outside. And if the, a lot of the emails that were brought up, for example, he sent one email that was sent to the executives that said, you know, to, to the executive, it said, please put all the reserves you reasonably can. This quarter is too high. Now, as prosecutors looked at it, they said, Michael Rand expressed an normative judgment. He said this quarter is too high. Therefore, anything that his executives did with the accounting estimates were fraudulent. As Mike looks at it, he looks at the emails and said, I said, take all the reserves you reasonably can. To the extent executives stayed later and found more opportunities for reserve, that's totally appropriate, and it is. That, that's something acceptable with it within the accounting system. And to the extent that he said this quarter's too high, that's simply expressing a judgment. But it's not wrong simply because you have a judgment of whether this quarter is good or bad that, that makes an estimate right or wrong. So it's a really fascinating case because it really tries to – it really challenges our notion of actually what discretion managers have when they make these estimates for, for quarterly or annual earnings – and, you know, that you can actually be held accountable for, for not just fraudulently overstating earnings, but ex a, this is a case where someone's actually being held accountable for underreporting earnings. So it's a really interesting case and one that uh, for Rand has been significant. He, he actually just started serving his sentence, which will be uh, upwards of five years earlier this year. So what was his motive? Like, why did he want to underreport earnings? Yeah, I mean, is, is he is he would look at it was never underreporting. He was saying he was using his discretion to, in some sense, uh, to make to use his appropriate discretion to try to slow the growth. And the reason why you would want to you know slow the growth is because if you start blasting through your earnings estimates every quarter by thirty or forty percent, what's going to happen is that analysts are then going to predict next quarter you need to grow by 40%. And in some ways, at some point, you're going to create unrealistic expectations. This is interesting. What If you look at Microsoft during the 90s, when Microsoft was doing extraordinarily well, 
if you go to the earnings conference calls, management was actually trying to walk down analysts in the investment community, telling them that they're not going to do as well next quarter as they have done in the past. It's actually what Facebook is doing right now with their mobile advertising. They're trying to tell the market they're, they're not going to grow as quickly as they have been in the past. Because the problem is you can actually build in expectations that become so ambitious or so high that you actually can't meet them. And I think that's what they were worried about at Beezer Homes is that they were just doing so well that they were essentially making their own kind of a problem. And so what they wanted to do is essentially say, let's be as conservative as we can with our accounting. Therefore, uh, you know, we, do, we don't want to be pushing it in any way to be aggressive. But if anything, we want to be the other extreme. We want to be overly conservative. Uh, to to try to slow down uh, this this just extraordinary growth we're showing to the market. So I mean, it would be fair to say from what you've learned from speaking with him that he had no intent of doing wrong. Well, I think I think that that comes to to the question. I mean, there there are different ways to interpret. I, I have a I bring the emails and I show I show students uh, and the email that says take all the reserves you reasonably can. This quarter is too high. And if you ask a class of people, an executive, say, how many of you think that this email is intentionally manipulative? How many of you think that this is perfectly acceptable? You'll see it'll be 50-50. Half the class will say this, is, uh, this, is, this was uh, the intent to do wrong, but trying to be clever about it in being, saying he, he's saying it, that it's reasonable. Um, the other half of the class will say, he said it's reasonable. This is the kind of stuff that firms do all the time. You need to be an aggressive as a corporate manager. And so to the extent that you say, you know, it's reasonable, there's actually nothing wrong with that at all. He's not even trying to be clever in this in this instance. And so I think ultimately, and I think this is the challenge, talking to, talking to the executives, we can never really know exactly what their mindsets were at the time. And I don't even think they going back can actually know exactly what they were, were thinking at any point in time. What we can do is look at the evidence and what it actually presents. And the, I think the question that Rand's case raises is if a, if a manager is how much discretion a ma- can a manager actually have? So a, a great example that, that he actually gave to me, but I think it's an important one, uh, is so suppose your, your firm uh, is about to prepare its annual report and you have some outstanding litigation. Uh, let's say it's whether the government regulators or maybe uh, a private civil suit, and you need to reserve, uh, put put a put an account reserve, uh, some expected uh, liability associated with these future payouts from this litigation. And you go to your first lawyer, and your first lawyer looks at looks at the the charges uh, or looks at the case and says, "I think this is going to cost around a hundred million dollars to settle." A- and you go, "Wow, that that's a lot." That if we actually settle for 100 million, we're we're not going to meet our our quarterly expectations. I want to make sure that that's what not what uh, that that that's actually the correct estimate. So you go to a second lawyer who's been just as good in the past at predicting your your future obligations. Another great lawyer. This lawyer says it's 50 million, and you go, wow, that that's better. If we actually do 50 million, that will hit our quarterly earnings. And you go, let me just get a third opinion. You go to a third opinion, and the third opinion says it's 25 million. Another lawyer, well-respected, has done good for you in the past. The question is, what are you obligated to actually reserve? Are you actually obligated to reserve $100 million, $50 million, $25 million, some average of those three things? In many instances, you could actually say it's up to – there's a lot of managerial discretion involved. If you actually ask a class of lawyers, they will actually say, 
you need to reserve the amount that's reasonable. Well, the question is, you have three all reasonable lawyers, and so you can kind of pick one. If you ask a class of managers, they're going to go, we're going to pick $25 million. Well, the trick is, if you pick the $25 million because you've shopped around for a different estimate, you're able to meet your earnings estimates. You're going to blow through them, if anything. Stock price is going to go up. But the only reason why you've managed to hit those expectations is because you shopped around for the kind of estimate that kind of works well for you in that instance. That's pure managerial discretion. That's allowed under accounting. That's not actually something we would say is manipulative. But in a way, you could say it's certainly earnings management because you're you're trying to manage earnings by looking for estimates that, that kind of work well for you. So it's an example like that 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 certainly shows how complex this is, is that what makes something fraudulent and what makes something the kind of discretion that managers get as leaders within a firm? Um, it's not always clear cut. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like a very complex issue and, and quite a fascinating one. I mean, I had no idea that uh, companies could use uh, quite a bit of discretion in how they report their earnings. That's that's new to me. So Another interesting example is uh, like pension assumptions. This was a wildly uh, kind of a, a practice that firms were employing is that if you actually go back a decade, if you look at the rate of return that a lot of firms expected on their pensions, they were putting you know eight and nine and ten percent, which I think any of us, unless you were invested in Madoff's Ponzi scheme, you weren't going to get a ten per, a nine or ten percent consistent rate of return uh, going going forward. Uh, those were really optimistic. Why? Is because they found someone to justify it. But if they would say the rate of return on their pension assets were six percent, they would have to fund them a lot more. And so it was advantageous to find someone to say that actually an 8% rate of return for your pension assets are appropriate so you don't have to fund them as much that helps actually maintain earnings. And we actually have some really nice academic work actually showing that firms, when they were actually having a tough quarter, they would actually meet their earnings guidance not by cutting costs or not even by finding additional sources of revenue, but by changing their pension assumption and by changing their pension assumption that influenced their quarterly earnings. So really subtle ways in which firms can, in some sometimes legally manage their earnings, in other cases illegally uh, manipulate it. Right, right. Well, Eugene, I'd like to narrow in on insider trading if we could. Um, so I, I guess maybe the first question I should ask around this, and I'm pretty interested to get your take on it. What is insider trading? Like, how do the courts determine whether or not something is deemed as insider trading? So let me focus on. I'll, I'll go according to the United, U.S. U.S. definition uh, because if we go uh, globally. There's different definitions of illicit insider trading, but the U.S. is is by and large where the vast majority, and we're talking probably 90 percent plus of the insider trading cases are prosecuted in criminal. I believe actually the U.K., which is, would be second in insider trading charges, didn't have its first insider a criminal insider trading charge. I believe till 2008. So it is really a, still a, a very much a U.S. U.S. phenomenon in terms of prosecution, and in the U.S. So we can think of insider trading as any time an insider, a board member, an executive, an employee, someone with confidential insider knowledge, trades in a firm shares. Now, a lot of insider trading is not illegal. Executives are allowed to trade in shares. Board members are allowed to trade in shares, and as long as they report those trades to regulators, that's acceptable. However, then there's another form, which is illegal insider trading. And illegal insider trading occurs when people misappropriate information from the firm and trade in it for their own personal benefit. 
or give someone else to trade with it for their own personal benefit. So the, the idea is when you, you're essentially stealing information from, from a firm and then you're using that information in some way to benefit oneself outside that context. So let me give a, an example that shows how, I'll say, tricky this notion of insider trading trading is. And so one of my, you could say, favorite cases around insider trading, uh, and this is a civil case uh, about a year ago, is two, a uh, couple analysts at actually Capital One, the credit card company. And these guys were basically acting like a sophisticated hedge fund trader would, that they had this hypothesis that the amount of purchases at retailers like Chipotle, uh, McDonald's uh, retailers would be correlate, correlated with, with the uh, sales monthly sales, quarterly sales for the firm. So what they did was basically take the credit card database, their two analysts inside the firm, basically come up with a very, very elaborate algorithm that would textually search the billions of credit card transactions occurring at Capital One. And they basically found that there was a significant correlation that when more people bought burritos at Chipotle, Chipotle would report better than expected same-store sales, and the stock would go up. This is the kind of sophisticated thing that goes on at, at hedge funds. You know, sophisticated textual searching to come up with a hypothesis to try to create tra- tradable, tradable strategies. And so these couple guys came up with this and, and very quickly made, made just a tremendous amount of money and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And ultimately, the SEC discovered this and then went after them for, for illegal, illegal insider trading. And the reason this was illegal is because these were two traders who misappropriate information. They took information that belonged to Capital One and then used this for their own trading purposes to, to personally benefit. Now, what's weird is that there would have been two ways to basically do the same exact thing that would have been legal. So Capital One could have actually hired these two guys and said, you know what? It's okay. We could use this credit card data for our own trading purposes. Can you make these trades on behalf of Capital One? If they were trading on behalf of Capital One and not themselves, it would have been acceptable. But even more extraordinarily would have been Capital One, minus whether they had an agreement with uh, customers that might have not allowed this, but Capital One could have actually sold this data to hedge funds. And in fact, there's actually two credit card companies that actually do sell this kind of data to hedge funds. So a a well-known hedge fund trader could pay Capital One a million dollars to get these kind of aggregated uh, the, these these records of just not showing the person's name, but just showing the, the billions of transactions that were done and just sell it, let's say a million dollars a month to a hedge fund. And then the trader at a hedge fund could have run the exact same search these two guys did and traded on it and probably made millions of dollars. And, and there are ways of actually legally doing this. And that would not be illegal insider trading. That's actually fully legal. So the weird part is, is that prosecutors and regulators, not only in the United States, but globally, often say that a trade, insider trading is illegal because it harms investors who don't have access to that information. It, it ultimately makes the markets unfair. And frankly, that's totally misleading, and that's actually wrong. That's not what illegal insider trading is. Illegal insider trading is misappropriating information. There's a whole lot of ways within financial markets to become appropriately more informed than other investors using information that they can't access because it's either too expensive or they don't have, and legally trade on it. So this is what makes insider trading so uh, interesting, is that the rhetoric about what makes it right and wrong is actually totally different 
then actually what the law says is right and wrong. That's a pretty interesting case study that you bring up there about the credit card data. I mean, that sounds somewhat unethical to me that that credit one would actually sell, uh, was it Capital One, sorry, would actually sell credit card data to hedge funds. Yeah, I probably should clarify. I don't, I, I'm, uh, I'm very certain Capital One actually doesn't sell that data, but I will note, but I, I, I believe it's actually footnoted in my book. Uh, if, if some of your listeners want to look, that several companies that actually do sell similar data. But we can think of a lot of other contexts. So, for example, um, there's a number of, uh, uh, of satellite uh, data providers that actually sell satellite data of parking lots at well-known retailers, uh, the, the Walmarts, the Costcos of the world. And using satellite data, you can see how many cars are in the parking lot to hopefully try to make better trading insights. There's companies that actually have uh, these helicopters that go over basically oil uh, oil reservoirs that actually can detect how much oil is actually in the reservoir to give a sense of how much oil is being basically sold and refined in any given month so people can infer what oil prices will be. I mean, I can kind of give a laundry list of, of, of data sources that that – Hedge funds, top hedge fund traders routinely use. Every top hedge fund has access to because it's expensive data, but it's expensive data if you can afford it and get access to, that that actually is extremely valuable. Now, the reason why we say that's not illegal is because hypothetically, me and you and anyone listening could go buy this data. But in fact, many of these data sources are expensive. We're talking thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in some instances. So... Practically speaking, they're, they're limited to a small number of investors who can actually afford to acquire that kind of insight. But ultimately, it's not illegal because technically, you're not misappropriating. You're not stealing it from anyone. You're, you're, you're acquiring it uh, legitimately. But it does get on the borderline between what, what does it mean to, to act, uh, you know, could say, uh, fairly in a financial markets. But uh, the only reason why someone trades a share is because you believe you have an insight that someone else doesn't have. The only reason you're buying a share is because you think it's going to go up. And the only reason that person is selling it to you is because presumably they think it's going to go down. So in some ways, insider trading isn't, isn't actually deceptive because the people who are, let's say, buying shares because they have privileged inside information, they're not being deceptive. They're actually telling the people, I believe these shares are going to go up in value. Um, the trick is, is that, well, how do you actually acquire that insight? Did you acquire it legitimately or illegitimately? And that's a very, very fine and, and delicate question and something that still, I think, uh, security regulars are actually struggling. This is why we've seen a number of cases go in the United States to the Supreme Court, because it is a very, uh, it's a very gray area, especially when you're operating in these very uh, aggressive kind of bounds of, of really unique data sources. Mm. Now, who are the victims of insider trading? Are there victims of insider trading at all? Yeah, this is this is the I think the the challenging part. Uh, often, most time, people think that the the victim of insider trading are, are is the, the market itself. Uh, I tend to find that not especially convincing because, as I just described, there's a lot of instances in which sophisticated investors are actually trading on information that I don't have all the time. So there's lots of instances where we have information imbalance. But what I will say, the harm of insider trading comes from the misappropriating of information. If we actually think of insider trading not as someone having information that I don't have, but rather someone stealing information and then using that for their own advantage, it actually makes a lot more sense of why this is something that we could prosecute criminally and why it's actually serious. 
So the best instance, we can actually think of this from some cases that, that occurred earlier in the 80s, is that when people misappropriate information about a, a takeover or some M&A event, is that if you have some confidential information around a, a potential acquisition, you know if the firm's acquired, the stock price is going to go up. So what do you start doing? You start buying shares in, in the firm. And if you start buying heavily enough and you tell some buddies about it, you tell some other investors about it, what's going to happen? Those shares are going to rise, rise, rise in price. And what could you effectively do? You either make that acquisition more more expensive or ultimately you could make the firm price go up so much that it makes it infeasible for, for that actual acquisition to actually take place. So by stealing information from the firm that is thinking of doing that acquisition, you've actually harmed that firm. But that's a really subtle way of trying to interpret who's the victim. And because in some sense, in this instance, we're saying that it's the firm with information that's actually having that information stolen. One of the most interesting cases uh, in the 1980s uh, about insider trading is actually a reporter from the Wall Street Journal who actually wrote a well-known column called the Hurt on the Street, uh, Hurt on the Street column. And he actually uh, gave his columns and, and some of the information to, to his partner at the time who actually would trade on it. So there's no evidence that he actually biased his column. But basically, this guy would write uh, one of the most influential columns. Uh, you know, It was in the Wall Street Journal. It was the kind of column that would move markets. If he talked about you know, firm X and spoke positively of it, the firm X was going to rise the following day. And what was interesting about his, this case is that ultimately he was convicted criminally uh, for insider trading. And the question was, well, what did he do wrong? He, he, you know, he wasn't trading on this. It was actually just his column that he actually gave to someone. It was a column that he wrote himself about the firm insight that he himself believed. But what the judge uh, ultimately explained is that he misappropriated information from the Wall Street Journal and gave it to someone. And although that's information that he wrote, this is his column, his column belonged to the Wall Street Journal. And the only one that could do anything with that column was the Wall Street Journal. And by giving that to someone else, he could have jeopardized the reputation of the Wall Street Journal. And the only one that had the ability in the, to jeopardize the reputation of the Wall Street Journal was the Wall Street Journal itself. And so this is just kind of shows you how people over time, insider trading has kind of evolved and changed what it means. But uh, this case, you could say the victim was the Wall Street Journal. And the prior example I gave, the, the firm was the, uh, the, the firm thinking of doing an acquisition. But it's subtle. It's it's not um, as oftentimes uh, described simply as the quote market that's harmed, like in these in, uh, in these instances. Now, when we think about, I guess, you know, when people hear about insider trading, probably one of the first things that come to mind is you know someone from who has information who maybe can't trade it themselves, ringing someone else uh, and letting them in on something uh, right away before it's known to the general public, um, sort of giving them a head start. In those types of situations, there's two parties involved, okay? What is the incentive from the party giving out the information to do so, generally speaking? Yeah, this is, and this is one of the, the questions that, that's, uh, that's been evolving about, does the person need a, a personal benefit? And right now, according to you know securities law in the United States, the person that's tipping tipping uh, someone off uh, of a hint actually needs to receive something in return. Historically, that's been viewed as money. They actually get some kind of monetary compensation in return. What's interesting is the recent case, which is uh, Rajat Gupta, 
the former managing director of Goldman uh, of, of McKinsey and Company. I mean, one of the most you know uh, kind of celebrated executives uh, in the world. He was actually sitting on the board a board of Goldman Sachs, and after one Goldman Sachs meeting, he actually called a, a billionaire uh, hedge fund, Raj Rod Natum, and actually divulged some of the confidential information that he just learned at at the Goldman Sachs board meeting uh, soon after that call. And so the question was asked as so regulators went after him, uh, both civilly and criminally, for insider trading because he tipped, exactly as your example is, he tipped off some information uh, to, to this hedge fund trader. And then the question became, well, what, what did he receive in return? Because in this case, he didn't receive any, any money or, or a sports car or a, a Rolex watch or anything. But the, the court prosecutor successfully argued that he basically received friendship. Uh, and so this just shows you how kind of nebulous this becomes that in, in he was convicted. Uh, he, he actually recently got out of prison, but in this case, he, he is appealing his case because his view that there was no personal gain from this. And if there was no personal gain, he didn't engage in insider trading, but ultimately the court, the jury decided that he did receive something and that something could be fuzzy like friendship. Um, just showing you how kind of diverse these benefits can be. Just speaking in broader terms now, Eugene, your book that you've written is titled Why They Do It. So, you know, it'd be foolish of me not to ask you, why do they do it? Like, why do people who are already wealthier than probably 99.9% of people commit financial crimes? Yeah, so most of the time we we think of uh, the popular explanation of why successful people engage in white collar conduct is because it's a a failure of, of reasoning. That coming from the school of economics, this is that people like executives weigh the expected benefits expect against the expected costs, and to the extent the benefits could be money, could be power, exceed the cost, they go ahead. So this is a failure of reasoning. And what I argue in the book is this actually doesn't look like in most of these instances so much of a failure of reasoning, but rather how I describe it, a failure of intuition. The executives themselves don't see the harm associated with these actions at the time. They are actually making them. And the reason why they don't see this harm is because the harm itself is so distant. The victims themselves are are psychologically and physically distant from them. And the harm itself is temporally offset. At the time they're actually doing the harmful acts, think of something like a Ponzi scheme. People are going, going head over heels trying to give you more money, putting you in prominent positions. It's not until later that the harm itself is actually revealed. And as a result, because there isn't, not that negative feedback mechanism, uh, like when you, if you were to physically hurt someone, because this harm is actually so distant that intelligent, even quite smart people can actually do quite harmful things to the market and actually not viscerally see that harm at the time they are actually making it. And so that's what I explore in the, the, the course of the book and, and some of the challenges that are associated with that. And at least how I kind of step back and think about that is that we all do things that we, we know are wrong. For example, anyone that drives, we, we all speed a little bit and we find ways of rationalizing the speed limit's too low. Uh, we, we're not going to get a ticket if we're only going five miles per hour with the speed limit. Uh, we find all kinds of ways. Everyone else is going that same speed. We find all kinds of ways to rationalize why, even though we know what we're doing is wrong, it doesn't really matter. But if you want to know why people don't proceed to do things that are actually significant, is because they feel it's actually harmful. And if you actually feel something is harmful, and a particular act is harmful, you don't even consider doing it. It never even enters your decision set. 
And this is why even if right now around the world we were to, in my town, we were to drop in Cambridge the prohibition against murder tonight. Police say there's no, there's no prohibition, there's no sanctions. I'm not going to be worried if I walk outside that someone's going to come up and stab me. Why? Because most well-socialized people have, know that stabbing someone is harmful, so it's not even going to enter their set even if there are no sanctions associated with it. The problem with most white-collar crimes is that there isn't that visceral feeling of actually doing something harmful. And so you can actually do these really damaging things that ultimately harm investors, employees, uh, and ultimately oneself, but not get that sense of, of feeling of, of actually doing anything harmful at the time. Right. So I take it you haven't seen the Purge movies? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, it's funny. I watched that just 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 a month ago. Uh, you know, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting interesting hypothesis, and but one the one that uh, not, not to say I, I particularly want, want to test it, but but I'm willing to say I, I, we can say that there are some countries. This is how at least I thought I thought about it in theory. There are countries where you could say the, the rule of law is actually so weak in some of the securities markets. But effectively, you don't see people running amok and doing everything, you know, that would be considered unethical. Um, you know, countries in Western, I'll say Western Europe, for instance, up until the 19, late 1990s, there really wasn't any prohibition in most Western European countries against uh, illegal tra- insider trading, as we generally think some of the most egregious insider trading would be. And it, sure, there was probably some, but that wasn't what everyone was going to seek, seeking to do in securities markets. Why? Because people had... I, I think we're reasonably socialized that there's there's more honorable ways to actually engage in trading. Um, much like to the purge, I think there's more honorable ways of probably dealing with our problems than going to stab your neighbor. <laughs> Fortunately. <laughs> I think that was a great analogy. I was just uh, playing around. But um, one of the things I, I either heard you talking about this in a, another interview you've done or I read it somewhere, but it was kind of getting at the point that, you know, it's very easy for us to judge because we're not in the situation as these people who have been convicted of financial crimes. Do you think that most people in their same situation would have perhaps done the same thing? Yes. So that's my, that's my hypothesis that in a lot of these, maybe not all, but in a lot of these instances, we would, we would behave similarly. And I think that's the, I think the humbling challenge, which I pose to, to my students and, and to readers, readers of this book, I mean, I think the, the, the trouble is we, we oftentimes think we, we view the world and, and questions and ethical decision making with our current you know, norms and beliefs and values and incentives and pressures. But it's not the right way of thinking about how to actually resolve these issues in the context in which these executives are, are actually facing them. We would need to place ourselves in the position surrounded by their norms, intuitions, uh, belief, beliefs, pressures, culture, which, which is wholly different. Um, and, and I think much more challenging that if I took one thing away from this, this project myself, it's that to have a little bit more, I think, humility about where, where I think our limitations, as I described, this is, these are failures of intuitions. These aren't necessarily failures of reasoning. And our intuitions as humans are not well designed to see these distant kinds of harms. So we're all susceptible to doing things that have these, these distant kinds of harms. Just we're generally not placed into the decision-making context in which if we, we mess up in one of these instances, it has such dramatic repercussions uh, on other, other individuals as a CEO or CFO of a firm, a firm would. I mean, one of the challenges with, I'll say, corporate training or, or you could say business school education when it comes to thinking about ethics 
and thinking about these dilemmas is that we may like really easy in these kinds of training exercises that if we're going to talk about an insider training dilemma, what do we do? We, we give you a case, which, which we then discuss in class or in that training exercise. And in doing so, we've actually made life really, really easy because we've first, we've identified what the ethical dilemma is. Two, we've now are talking about it in a group of, of different minded individuals. And then three, we're going to spend a while actually engaging in reasoning, maybe half an hour, maybe an hour long discussion talking about it. In the real world, all three of these things don't exist in most instances. I would actually argue the hardest part for a lot of instances is actually identifying the really the ethical dilemma, the moral challenge in the first place. Because in a lot of instances, so I, I mentioned Raja Gupta earlier. Raja Gupta, 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting, calls a hedge fund trader and divulges this information. I mean, this isn't something that you really need a case study to decide whether that's a good or bad decision. I mean, this is a, just a horrendously myopic and, and really pretty stupid decision. And if I'm confident that if he would have seen this on a sheet of paper talking about it, he would have identified this and, and probably changed his course of action. The problem is that even someone as smart as Gupta, I mean, really a brilliant strategic mind, could overlook the most basic challenge associated with this, which is identifying the ethical dilemma in the first place. And that's something that I, I think ex executives, especially as people go up within an organization, have a more and I think more difficult time actually trying to identify which are the kinds of decisions that really could have that could could undermine me and my success in my organization, because it's very easy to, to believe that I know how to solve these myself and my 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 reasoning and intuition are, are going to be spot on each time. Which, in fact, I think the evidence suggests that that's not necessarily the case. So humility is what uh, what I've taken that out. And, and hopefully people that read my book will, will gain, a, a, I think, a bit of that, uh, that challenge and maybe think a little bit, uh, become a little bit more self-aware by seeing these oftentimes just really extraordinary individuals do things that had just such extraordinary and really quite tragic consequences. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really fair point. Now, those who are living out uh, prison sentences, what sort of life do they lead in prison? Like, does having money afford them any luxuries or are they mixed in with, you know, the gangbangers and the murderers? What's, what's life like for them in prison? Prison, I mean, as much as it's easy to say, I think casually because of the harm some of these individuals have done, that a couple of years in prison doesn't seem significant. Uh, I, I would I would push back on anyone who, who can kind of casually dismiss a couple years in prison like that uh, is, I think, being a little too cavalier. Uh, prison's, prison's nasty. It's exactly, uh, from my visits, it's exactly like what one would expect. It's, it's dirty, it's cold, and it's loud. It's just really, really unpleasant. Um, being privileged doesn't, doesn't afford them. It, it affords them great lawyers to hopefully try to reduce their sentence, to hopefully try to get them out of prison in the first place. But Ultimately, once they're convicted and if they're sentenced to prison, uh, they, they don't get any, you could say, uh, ex privileges, so to speak, uh, that makes them uh, really exceptional. Uh, other than they have the resources to, you know, call home, uh, to write letters, uh, to get a modest amount in their commissary account. Um, they're fortunate they generally have better family relationships. People will come visit them. But the, but it, it's it's difficult. Um I'll say the part that I found interesting about this project is that, by and large, the executives were not remorseful. Uh, they weren't remorseful about their crimes. They, they, they recognized that they did it. They recognized that they were punished. 
but they didn't, the harm itself never really resonated with them in part, as I explained, because the harm itself seems so different, uh, diffuse and distant. But the thing that did weigh uh, on, on these executives, what was their, the impact on their family? It's, it's missing their, their son's graduation, uh, their daughter's birthday. Uh, it, it, that's what weighed so heavily on these individuals. But the trouble is that no one, no one thinks, I'll say, even when you're engaging in, in things that were, are clearly criminal, the kinds of things that are clearly going to potentially land you in prison, no one thinks that they're actually doing something uh, uh, that's going to land them in prison. People invariably see that's what those guys, those are other people that go to prison. Those are the bad guys. It's not me. That's another a position I could see myself in. And that's the problem is that there are executives that are actually doing things that are going to land them in prison, but they can't recognize it even at the time that they're actually doing it, which makes deterrence uh, uh, challenging in that regard is because you want people to think about, oh, my God, if I do this, I'm going to miss my my I could miss my daughter's wedding. I could miss my son's graduation because that would deeply impact, I think, decision making. The trouble is while these decisions are going on, people are not thinking that. Mm. Do you feel as though those who you've you've documented in your book, do you feel as though most of them were fairly prosecuted or do you think some of the punishments were too harsh? That's an interesting question. I've thought thought about that in in some instances where it depends how you want to, I think, look at it. I I think by and large they're fair um, because the, 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 the impact of their decisions are, are really quite extraordinary. Um, at the same time, I'll say from the standpoint, if, if we're thinking from deterrence or even the impact on their lives, whether someone's in prison for five years or in one year, I, I, it almost is serving the same, same in some sense effect of what it's doing. Their ability to actually uh, go, go back into business in the future is eliminated. Their reputation is gone. The only thing that really, in some sense, impacts by, in some instances, being in prison for three years as opposed to one is what they're what they're missing out. Which, from my standpoint, missing out on, on more events in life, uh, you know, their time from their kids and their spouse, it would be if that was serving a, a strong deterrent effect. I, I would actually be, I think, in favor of that. The trouble is, I don't think that's actually serving a strong deterrent effect. Um, as a result, I, I actually don't know if a lot of the effort which has been created to lengthen sentences is actually serving uh, the the objective in which regulators oftentimes have, have kind of spelled out of why we we ought to send a pre- prison uh, people as long as they do. I mean, many instances where I do think the sentences are pretty extraordinary, which I don't know if it's speaking about the white-collar crimes are too long or our murder or manslaughter is too short, but a lot of these instances, I mean, we look at Senses like Madoff or even some of the, uh, the CEO of Enron, they're in prison for longer than people who actually convi- that commit uh, certain types of, of, of murder. Uh, you know, certainly longer than manslaughter, but even people with you know second degree charges. It's pretty extraordinary to think that you could actually be a CEO and engage in, in a white collar crime and actually be in prison for longer than someone who, who killed someone. Um, that I think that's pretty pretty humbling to think that. I think that actually, in one hand, recognizes that regulators think that that is, is is that serious, which it perhaps is. On the other hand, it actually suggests that that, in my view, that maybe people who convict uh, some of these violent offenses, maybe they need to be in prison longer. Also, um, it's a challenging question, but 
these these things are I think always kind of changing over time. And judges, the one thing I, I have been happy is that judges have been using a lot more of their I think own individual discretion to find out what's the appropriate sentence for individuals rather than uh, just relying on sentencing guidelines, which oftentimes produce just really uh, odd and really just extraordinary sentences because it's based upon dollar dollar losses rather than the underlying crime itself, where really people should be punished for the underlying crime, not the, the dollar, so to speak, because that's in some ways unrelated. If you're a bigger firm and you commit fraud, that's simply going to have a bigger dollar amount associated with it. But that doesn't make that offense actually any worse or better than someone from a just a relatively smaller firm that did the exact same offense. That's a, that's a really fair comment. I think you answered that really well. And there's one other thing I'd like to ask you about, um, and then we'll probably uh, call this a wrap. But I, I guess this probably comes under the category of, of financial crimes. Uh, and I'm not sure how f- closely you've been following this case, but uh, Nav, the trader who's uh, allegedly uh, responsible for the flash crash, I don't think he's been sentenced just yet, but the latest thing I read is he's um, expected to serve about six years in prison. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'll say I don't know all the all the details of, of his case, so I, I probably uh, I, I don't want to unfairly uh, judge without knowing all the details. But I'll say the but the the flash trading is actually pretty interesting in that going back to our discussion around insider trading earlier is that. There's just a lot of, I think, opportunities in which people are trading on information or trading in ways that we would, if we step back, are saying that would be potentially unfair. A lot of these things are, uh, are you could say, allowed, or in some cases, it just simply haven't been deeply investigated or people are willing to overlook. So a lot of these kind of cases that, that pop up in the news, for example, this one, it, it makes me question if we were to step back and Rather than having a, you know a specific individual, uh, we could say the same thing with the, the LIBOR case, uh, Tom Hayes in the UK. Um, we have these individuals that become almost figureheads for for these offenses, which really represent a much broader, um, I'll say, cultural and and uh, institutional problems. That frankly, a lot of other people are doing things that are similar, uh, but but are for whatever reason, not being punished in the same way. And I think this goes back to what we what ideally would rather do is rather than trying to find an individual uh, is actually think about, well, what institutionally is causing some of these things to arise and then figure out how to, I think, fairly met out sanctions against all the people that are actually involved in this rather than, than a single finger a figurehead. Um, but that's challenging. That requires many more resources. And I think the one area where I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to regulators is that they're under limited, limited, uh, limited resources. So what they have the incentive and, and frankly they're forced to do is not go after all the instances they see, but go after the ones where they have a great case and can create the really convincing evidence to, to make the conviction. And it's though that particular or two or three individuals that end up being sanctioned uh, rather than kind of all the individuals that are much more genuinely involved in that type of misconduct. Eugene, let's leave it at that, man. Um, Guys listening to this podcast, if you want to grab a copy of Eugene's book or just find out more about it, uh, you can go to chatwithtraders.com slash why they do it, all one word, no dashes, um, and that'll take you directly to uh, Eugene's book, Why They Do It on Amazon. So that's chatwithtraders.com forward slash why they do it. 
Eugene, where else can listeners go to find out more about you? Uh, well, on my, my webpage, I, I uh, describe a little bit more of some of my, my academic work uh, related to this. And uh, slowly but surely, I'm a, I'm a social media, I'll say, uh, amateur. Uh, but I've been slowly tweeting, slowly but surely, about some of the interesting uh, in, in unusual cases that I do see pop up every once in a while. Um, so trying to highlight, I think, some of these interesting issues that we've been discussing uh, today and some of, uh, some of the work. A good one. So do you want to give out the link for your website and also your Twitter handle? Uh, yes. So it's, it's uh, at Eugene Soltis. And then uh, my website, it's at uh, Harvard, Harvard Business School. So it's uh, either accessible via hbs.edu uh, and you'll see me pop up uh, Eugene Soltis. Uh, and I also have uh, eugenesoltis.com describes a little bit more and also gives an excerpt, uh, the, the, actually the first chapter of the book if people want to read that. Oh, very cool. Well, I'll make sure to include all those links in the show notes as per usual. Uh, Eugene, thanks very much for doing the podcast, man. It's a lot of fun. Thank, thanks so much, Aaron. I really enjoyed it. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.